Greetings and welcome back to the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about those tomatoes. What do you do with them when frost is near and you have bunches of them in the garden that aren't ripe? Also, what do you do with all those leaves all over your lawn from your trees and the neighbors? Should you leave them there or clean them up and then what can you do with them after the fact? And finally, whether it was from the windstorm from last month or you just have damaged trees, what can you do about it? Are they worth saving or should you cut them down? This week I've been getting a lot of questions on how to protect tomato plants in the garden when they're in danger of frost. Earlier in the season, say late September into early October, because we're still regularly in the 80s and sometimes we get a individual frost, that will dip down into the 20s, but then we jump right back up into really good weather, I recommend people protect their tomatoes by putting tarps over them or, you know, blankets or whatever else you're going to use so that you can get another three or four weeks out of those tomato plants. But when we start getting into mid-October, you start getting diminishing returns on protecting those tomato plants because Yeah, so you got them through a frost, but once we're consistently below 70 degrees, unless you're going to do something like cover them with floating row cover or somehow cover them with low tunnels so that they get some greenhouse effect from solar radiation keeping them above 70 degrees, if you just keep the tomatoes in the garden in the 50s and 60s, even though they don't freeze, They don't really ripen fruit. And if those tomatoes are constantly exposed to temperatures below 40 degrees at night, especially, they can develop an off flavor. And so at this point, even if there isn't going to be a hard frost and and the temperatures are going to get cooler like they are to where we're kind of at that 70 degree threshold, but we're going to be in the 60s and next week probably into the 60s and the 50s and we're just losing ground as far as heat, it's getting close to the time that you should consider just taking the tomato fruit off of the plants and storing it so that you can have ripe tomatoes later. Now, you can take tomatoes off, whether they're green, yellow, or almost ripe. Now, if they are brand new tomatoes and they're still not fully formed, those may not ripen up, but the ones that are green that are sized up most likely will. So they need to be glossy green. And when you store those, what you're going to do is just take them off the plant and then put them in a cardboard box or some sort of a tray that has some air circulation. Put a layer of tomatoes down and then cover the tomatoes with a couple of layers of newspaper. Put another layer of tomatoes down. And you can do three or four or five layers in a box and then store them at around 50 to 55 degrees. So an unheated garage or a basement storage room that doesn't have a heat register in it are usually ideal. You are going to want to sort your tomatoes according to how ripe they are. The green ones go in one box, the yellow ones go in another, and the almost ripe ones go in another. Because if you have them all mixed together, the ones that are yellow and orangey-red will ripen and spoil and ruin the rest of the batch. And so we are going to want to keep those separate. 
Now on those green tomatoes especially, depending on the variety, those will store for several weeks. Oftentimes, you know, at least therefore to some of the newer varieties will last even longer. It's not unheard of for some tomatoes that are bred for like grocery stores or shipping or bred for storage. There's one called Long Keeper that will keep well into late November, December, and even into January if they're stored right at 50 degrees. Now, as you're ready to use these green tomatoes, what you're going to do is take as many as you need out of storage and put them in a warmer room right around 70 degrees. 70 is kind of critical, you know, 68 to 75 would be fine. And the reason you want this is that at around 70 degrees, the tomatoes will develop better flavor than if they're ripened at hotter temperatures. They develop those chemicals in there, those flavonoids or whatever you want to call them, that give the tomato that flavor so they will taste better. So it generally takes anywhere from three to seven days to ripen those green tomatoes. If you want to ripen them faster, then you can put them in a paper bag with a fairly ripe banana. Bananas put off a lot of ethylene gas, which is a plant hormone that causes ripening, among other things. And so if those tomatoes are exposed to that natural ethylene, they will ripen a few days sooner. So good luck with your tomatoes, and I hope you get as many as you can so that you can enjoy them as late into the fall and winter as possible. starting to drop off of our trees in our yards and there's always a question about what to do with them and even whether they can be left on the lawn. Now if the leaves are really sparse and you have maybe one or two or maybe three leaves per square foot you can totally see the lawn through them you are probably just fine mowing them right back into your lawn. However when the leaves get thicker and it's getting harder to see the lawn through them or in situations where they're several inches deep, those need to be collected. What I personally like to do when I'm collecting them, instead of just raking them up, is that I will run my lawnmower over them and either chop them up and put them back on the grass so I can collect them later, or chop them and put them into my mower bag. Now, I have a decent lawnmower that will do such things. I think the Least expensive lawnmowers may jam up, but the advantage to chopping them first makes it so that you can fit more into a bag and it makes it easier for them to be worked into the soil with a rototiller or a spade or a, a fork or something else. Now, one other advantage to getting leaves off the lawn before snow flies is that it helps prevent a disease called snow mold that develops in the lawn during the winter. You know you've had snow mold because when the snow melts off, you see dead patches and you don't know where they came from. If you collect your leaves, but you really don't have a use for them, I would encourage you not to send them to the landfill. There are many ways that you might be able to get rid of them. Many churches have Facebook pages to where you can contact your neighbors through them and say, I've got free leaves if anybody needs them. There are many gardening groups on Facebook, including Utah Gardening Experts, Utah Gardeners, 
there are even local homesteading pages on Facebook that you may find folks interested. If your city does not have green waste, then you may need to send them to the landfill, but please explore other options first. Justin Weicker, Senior Gardener at the Provo City Center Temple. Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well. So we've been talking back and forth for a couple of weeks via text about doing a recording for the podcast. We finally got together, and what we wanted to talk about this time was what to do with trees that were damaged in the windstorm or just trees that are really damaged and how to maybe repair them or if they need to be replaced. The windstorm from a few weeks ago damaged a lot of trees. Did you see any particular species that were more prone to damage than others? Some of them are actually a lot of favorites with landscapers like the flowering pear, purple robe locust, even willow trees. A lot of those are, when they get bigger, they get a little bit weak, and there's always the evergreens that that tip over. So you're talking pine and spruce? Yeah. Especially on like the pears and the willows and the purple robe locust, what are some things they have in common that make them more susceptible to breaking in a windstorm or under even like a heavy snow load? Lack of maintenance, either improper pruning or people just really not paying too much attention to their trees. But there are some such as the flowering pear and even the purple robe locust that have some really narrow branch angles. And those tend to be weaker than the the wider ones. And the snow and the ice will get in there and, and push them apart and break them off. Or they'll just, a lot of times the wind, when it blows, the trees will adapt to the direction the wind is blowing. And it's when it stops that they snap back and, and break off. So, But those narrow angles are just weaker. They get a lot of included bark down in the crotch, and that provides a weak point, and they'll break there. Well, it seems like also, like, purple robe locust has fairly strong wood, but it's brittle, I'm assuming, and insect damage from bores around the trunk and the crotches where the branches meet the trunk is weakened from there also. Yeah, that is true. Besides having brittle wood and insect damage, you mentioned something earlier that I thought was interesting that caused trees to fall over, especially like the conifers, the pines and spruce. And can you address the overwatering aspect of this? If the tree is planted in grass, people tend to water for their grass and it'll be a lot for those trees to handle and they'll have a very shallow root system. And uh, when the wind starts to blow on those larger trees, that's a lot of leverage because there are a lot of wind resistance and it'll, the roots won't actually have enough soil to grab a hold of. They'll just lift the whole lawn right up out of the ground as they tip over. That's not really a good thing. And so if the trees are in the lawn, they have to be in the lawn you know, whatever reason, what kind of irrigation schedule do you recommend to try to prevent this? Well, you can still water to keep your lawn green, but I would I would err a little bit on 
stressing your grass just a little bit and then water for the tree, uh, water deep and for a long period of time. So just occasionally just take your hose out there at a very slow trickle and just let it run for an hour and then you go and move it 10 feet away and let it run for another hour, that kind of thing, uh, once every couple of weeks or so for a good mature tree. Let's say the tree is still standing, but it's had major limbs snapped out of it. What percentage of the canopy should be still intact to try to salvage the tree? If the canopy or the trunk is more than 40% compromised, the tree just needs to come out. So you can look at it, and if it's only, you know, about half there, it's time to take it out. On the Greenhouse Show, we oftentimes mention bolting the branch back together. And can you walk the listeners through that, and then if and when you would recommend it, and when you would recommend taking the branch completely out? If it's just a, a split that's occurring over 18 inches to two feet, even I've seen branches bolted together that are split three feet deep or three feet down. But uh, what you need to do is somehow get the, the split part back together. Now, I usually don't recommend wrapping anything around a tree, but this is one time where just to perform the repair, this is where I will recommend it. Get a packing uh, a, a tie-down strap one of the ratcheting tie downs and just wrap it, insulate it with like a sheet of cardboard or newspaper or something so that it doesn't dig into the bark and make more damage and, and just ratchet it so that it's holding it together. Then uh, depending, a lot of times these branches can actually be heavier than they look. So you're going to want to get, uh, I don't know, depending on the size of the branch, probably a half inch long bolt that's long enough to go all the way through the branch with at least about an inch on one end. Then drill a hole straight through both all the way through the branch, put the the bolt through and thread the nut on the other side. So once that bolt is in, does it ever come out? Nope, it stays in the tree forever. And the tree just grows around it? Yeah. We've also talked a little bit about cabling, which is a less common practice for homeowners, but can you describe cabling? Sure. Cabling is usually used for bigger trees, trees that are that may be worth something, worth saving. And basically, it's just taking an eye bolt through two branches and then running a cable in between them. Um, it's us usually done in a case where it actually the trunk that may be starting to twist and split just a little bit and just not necessarily used to remove stress or strain from the tree, but just to add support to those two branches that are having a problem. And so those two branches would be the ones in danger of collapsing because the trunk itself isn't that strong. Right. So do you recommend homeowners use this technique? It would depend on the risk assessments and uh, how much damage the tree could do and also the size and the age of the tree. So if it were, say, an oak tree, burr oak tree, that uh, is going to live six or 700 years, and it, it, it may be close to a house, one branch is starting to, to split away from the tree a little bit towards the house. This may be something they want to consider because that tree is going to cost a lot more to cut down and take out than it is to just cable that branch. 
So if you're, say you have maples, which some species of maples like Norway maple are infamous for internal rot. And so if you have a branch splitting or the trunk splitting and you see a lot of internal rot, what's your advice to the homeowners then? That tree has had possibly a lot of insect or disease damage and probably is not healthy enough to withstand the process involved in in the cabling or the bolting. It, it probably does not have the structural strength to support the bolts and stuff like that. So I would recommend at that point that they get a replacement plan in place and and plant the tree that they want to have replaced that and plan on taking that tree out in, say, three to five years. To have an assessment done, they'll say they're in doubt or they just want to save the tree anyway, even though they find some rots or cankers, could a certified arborist help assess the tree to determine whether it should come out or not? Oh, yes, definitely. Besides being the senior gardener at the Provo City Center Temple, you are an arborist. Mm -hmm. Is there a place that they should go look for a company or an individual online that they could say, anybody can get a chainsaw on a truck. How do they know that the person they call is certified? A lot of the the tree companies that have a certified arborist on staff will advertise that. They can also go online to the International Society of Arboriculture's website, that isa-arbor.org, or it might be .com, I don't know for sure. But uh, they can go on there and they have a directory of all the registered certified arborists in your area. Does Utah Community Forest Council still maintain a list also? Yes, I believe they do. So ucfc.org would be maybe another option, too. That would be an option, yes. Well, Justin, thank you so much for the time, and we will have you on again. Okay. Thank you again for listening to the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension. Find more information at Utah Gardening Experts and at extension.usu.edu slash Utah.